Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing The Mystery of Edwin Drood. I don't much like your tone, that supercilious sneer you wear. Clear you wear a finer cut than mine, but a waistcoat wall can soon be torn and faggots to tell maggots feed on you. Something in this speech seems ominous to me. Window over reach, pray promises to me. Praise to him on high, all this they should be glad. Won't you try some wine? No, don't get drunk from bad. I wish to wish you well. The world is yours before you, just like oysters on the ship. But first, how are we doing? I'm afraid to say that there is a bug going around. I just want you to know that right up top. Patty's family has been dealing with this mysterious bug as of late. The baby was sick. Patty's partner was sick. Thankfully, she is here with us today, healthy. And if she wasn't, I would tell her to go home immediately because I don't want that bug. We can't be spreading this mysterious bug around because here's the thing, Benny has it too. Whatever bug is going around, it bit Benny. He is not here today. We are very upset. We are very sad because we had planned, we we had planned a birthday celebration for Benny. Benny's birthday will drop the day before this episode drops. His birthday is January 14th, and we were all set to celebrate, but as he told us, he is quite sick. His girlfriend is taking care of him, and he is going to be turning 26. So, Benny, we want you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise by the time you turn 26. And I think this little song that we prepared that we're going to sing for you, I think this song is going to help. I'm just going to put it out there like the secret. I'm going to put it out out there like the secret. It's not so much a song as it is an invocation, a spell, but I just want to sing it for you now. Happy birthday. Don't be sick anymore. Happy birthday. Get your keister off the floor. Happy birthday. Don't be sick. Happy birthday. Do it quick. Happy birthday, Benny. Ginger ale and price is right. That's it. That's the song. Benny, happy birthday in advance. Get better, Benny. We demand it. I order you. I'm your boss. Not really your boss, but I just want you to feel better. That's it. As far as the opening segment is concerned, I want us to go right into the show facts. Let's get those show facts. Show me the show facts. The Mystery of Edwin Drood is based on the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens, who suffered a stroke, his second, in June 1870 and died a day after falling into an unconscious state. Six of the 12 monthly installments of Drood had already been published by that point, but there was no indication as to how the author had planned to resolve his tale. However, Dickens did make it clear in correspondence with biographer John Forster that the story was to generally be about, quote, the murder of a nephew by his uncle, quote, which would lead us to believe that a character within the story named John Jasper is the murderer at the heart of the story, but will perform a proper examination of the plot in due course. A mock trial was organized by the Dickens Foundation in 1914 to determine the ultimate fate of John Jasper, with writers G.K. Chesterton and George Bernard Shaw serving as the judge and jury foreman, respectively. From what I can tell, almost no one took this seriously. It was a silly affair, and Shaw spent most of the evening fucking around and poking fun at all involved. 
Over the years, several writers have made a go at tying up loose ends, as far as Drood is concerned, including Henry Morford, who penned the clumsily titled John Jasper's Secret, colon, sequel to Charles Dickens' Mystery of Edwin Drood. Oh boy. Other writers include Leon Garfield, Charles Forsythe, David Madden, and Thomas Power James, who claimed he had successfully managed to channel the spirit of Dickens himself. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, who was, uh, you know, kind of a moron when it came to these things, <laughs> believed Thomas's story and heaped praise on the gentleman, though many agree today that Thomas's writing itself was terrible. The writing, Thomas. You were channeling a ghost, but the writing was terrible. That's the spooky part. Ah! I would also like to note that Drood has been adapted four times for the silver screen in 1909, 1914, 1935, and 1993, popularity of murder mysteries and such. 2012 wasn't that long ago, Jonathan. Oh, it was a lifetime ago. What would you know about it? P.S. Thank you to listener and Patreon donor Mark S. for pointing out that the book is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, as I would not have picked up on that on my own. And best of luck to Mark S. as he begins directing a production of this very show. Yes! Edwin Drood, the mystery of Edwin Drood, I should say, was the 1986 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on December 2nd, 1985, my birth year, baby, at the Imperial Theater and ran for 608 performances. Its title was actually reduced to Drood, just Drood, halfway through the run, but a revival in 2012 saw the return of the full moniker. The Mystery of Edwin Drood is a much better, more marketable title than Drood, we can all agree on that. Good luck selling audiences on Doolittle Hollywood. Ooh. The book of the musical was written by Rupert Holmes, as suggested by the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. The music and lyrics were also written by Rupert Holmes, and Holmes also wrote the orchestrations for Drood, which potentially makes him the only Broadway composer to oversee that many components of one piece. Of course, Wikipedia could be leading me astray on this point, so if you have information that is more accurate, please let me know about it. Additional theatrical credits for Holmes include the books for musical adaptations of Marty, The First Wives Club, Robin and the Seven Hoods, and Secondhand Lions, as well as the book and lyrics for an adaptation of the 1963 film The Nutty Professor. Who wrote the music for that one, you might be wondering? That would be Marvin Hamlish of a chorus line fame, who, along with Richard Rogers, achieved PGOT status in his lifetime. That's a Pulitzer, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Marvin Hamlish, what were you doing working on The Nutty Professor? Had something gone terribly wrong? Marvin! But back to Rupert Holmes. Despite his success in the world of theater, most people would know him for his 1979 number one hit single, Escape, the Pina Colada song, which was prominently featured on the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. I was tired of my lady We'd been together too long Like a worn out recording Of a favorite song So while she lay there sleeping I read the paper in bed And in the personal columns There was this letter I read 
featured on the Shrek soundtrack for those of you out there who are Shrek stands and need that validation. The director of The Mystery of Edwin Drood was Wilford Leach. The musical director was Michael Staroben. The choreographer was Graciela Danielle. The sound design was by Tom Morse, and the costume design was by Lindsay W. Davis. And the original Broadway cast included, get ready, baby, Betty Buckley, Cleo Lane, George Rose, Patty Conayor, Howard McGillan, Jerome Dempsey, Karen Giambetti, Stephen Glavin, Charles Goff, Susan Goodman, Joe Grifasi, Nicholas Gunn, John Herrera, Judy Kuhn, Herndon Lackey, Francine Landis, Rob Marshall. Rob Marshall, I believe that's the Rob Marshall we should know and love. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. George N. Martin, Peter McRobbie, Brad Miskell, Donna Murphy, Jana Schneider, and George Spelvin. And I apologize. Once again, I know I got some of those names horribly wrong, and I apologize to those who became my mispronunciation victims. This week? Yeah, that's how I'll put it this week. Uh, I'm sorry. In terms of Tony Awards, The Mystery of Edwin Drood won Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Rupert Holmes, Best Original Score, Rupert Holmes, Best Actor in a Musical, George Rose, and Best Direction of a Musical, Wilford Leach, and it was additionally nominated for Best Actress in a Musical, Cleo Lane, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, John Herrera, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Howard McGillan, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Patty Cohenner. I think I got it a little bit... I think I got it a little bit better that time. Patty Cohenner and Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Jana Schneider and Best Choreography, Graciela Danielle, rounding out those nominations. 11 nominations in total, five awards at the end of the night. Let's talk about the plot, shall we? The Mystery of Edwin Drood is a light-hearted, fun, and fancy-free adaptation of the Dickens novel, okay? Which is generally described as being, you know, a rather grim piece. It is a tale of murder, after all. For the purposes of the musical, Rupert Holmes was inspired to adopt the show-within-a-show format, utilized by the likes of Pippin and Kiss Me Kate, after reflecting on his experiences with English pantomimes and musical halls. The Drood tale is therefore presented to us by a rowdy acting troupe, with each member taking on several roles within the narrative. This framework allows for a great deal of metatextual commentary and humor, as well as numbers that have nothing whatsoever to do with and provide a break from the story at hand. A high-spirited figure known as the Chairman serves as the leader of this acting troupe, and once they have finished introducing themselves, we are drawn into the fictional English city of Cloisterham. They've got all sorts of people in Cloisterham you'll come to find. Why, there's John Jasper, the curious choir master who secretly battles with a Jekyll and Hyde complex. Oh. And there's his darling nephew, Edwin Drood, the titular role. God save him. Yes, you'd find it difficult to locate two men closer than Jasper and Drood. Nothing could possibly come between them. Well, there is the fact that Drood has been engaged to the beautiful Rosebud since they were children, compounded with the fact that Jasper is Rosebud's music teacher, and Jasper is deeply obsessed with her, so deeply, and obviously obsessed, that Rosebud has come to dread the very sight of him. But what's this? There's a third man vying for Rosebud's affection? Her attention? Aye, aye, aye. Yes, that would be Neville Landless, an emigrant from Sri Lanka, who, along with his twin sister Helena, is currently under the care of one Reverend Crisparkle. Crisparkle used to be in love with Rosebud's mother, who died during childbirth, and truth be told, Crisparkle sees a bit of the mother in the daughter, if you catch my drift. The Reverend's a bloomin' pervert, is what I'm saying. 
Yes, 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 Jonathan. But what of the other characters? Tell us about the other characters. My, but you are impatient a lot, aren't ya? Too right. Let's have a move on, then. Over here we have Princess Puffer, a homely bag of bones, who runs an opium den in London. John Jasper is one of many men who take smoke at her establishment, and she has often heard him cry out Rosabud's name while under the influence. Curiouser and curiouser, <laughs> Mustn't forget Durdle though, mustn't we? Oh, come off it. You know old Durdles. He's the local grave digger. Hangs around the graveyard with his deputy for shits and kicks. They're the only ones who know that Edwin Drood and Rosabud actually called off their engagement. Yeah. An amicable split, I'm told, as neither felt a spot of real passion for the other. Rosabud even gave Drood her mother's hair clasp as a parting gift. Now, isn't that the king's peach? All right, here's the rub, dear. John Jasper decides to host a little get-together on Christmas Eve, and everyone's in a right fiery tizzy on that very evening. Drood and Neville can't stand each other. Helena and Chris Sparkle are concerned that Neville is going off the deep end, ruining his reputation, and Chris Sparkle's practically sparking his crisper over old Rosebud. And to top it all off, the actor playing Bazard is singing about how his parts are never as big as he would like. Oh, and in case you're wondering who the hell Bazard is in all this mess. Here's my answer to you. I don't know. The Christmas Eve partygoers go their separate ways as a thunderstorm rages on high. Oh, how it rages. Be sure to keep your knickers dry, me plump parties. The next day, Edwin Drood is found missing. Oh, Now, where could he have gone to? One of Chris Sparkle's acolytes found Drood's coat torn to ribbons down by the river. He did, he did. And Drood was last seen walking along the river with Neville Landless. So Neville must have been up to no good that night. Ah, the people of Cloisterham call for Neville's head. You did it. You've killed Edwin Drood. We know it. But John Jasper isn't convinced. He vows to discover the truth behind his nephew's disappearance. He also makes his seedy intentions known to Rosabud, and let me tell you, she is not interested. Get off with you, John Jasper, you stinking high-hander! Flash forward, six months have passed, and literally no one has found out a rotten fucking thing. Princess Puffer is on the case. John Jasper is on the case. We even got a private investigator named Dick Datchery on the case. But again, none of them have a full moon fuck-all clue as to what is going on. It would appear the only people capable of solving this toothy widget are the people in the audience? That's right! The chairman steps forward to declare that it's now up to us to determine A, who killed Edwin Drood, B, the true identity of Dick Datchery, as he is actually someone who who we've already met, who has been running around in disguise, and see who should fall in love at the end of the evening. Once the audience has had a chance to cast their votes, the troupe reconvenes to bring their mystery to a close. Shocking revelations are served up like eggies on toast. Princess Puffer, as it turns out, used to be Rosebud's nanny before she fell into a life of prostitution and drugs. She discloses the true identity of Dick Datchery, and depending on who the crowd voted for, that character explains why they adopted the disguise in the first place. In every variation, the detective explains how they snuck into John Jasper's home and found the hair clasp Rosebud had previously given to Drood. It would appear that all roads point to Jasper, and in a 
fit of madness, he confesses to murdering his own nephew while under the influence of opium. But that's not all she wrote. No, that ain't even the half of it. Because Durdles, the gravedigger, bore witness to the murder, and he knows who actually killed Edwin Drood. Note, members of the audience are technically allowed to vote for John Jasper when selecting the killer, though this choice is often discouraged, as he's the most obvious selection, and many productions have actually chosen to ignore votes for John Jasper altogether. So, with that in mind, Dirtles fingers the culprit, and in most variations, that character admits to having killed Drood, only because they thought they were killing John Jasper. The coat Drood had been wearing that night was one given to him by John Jasper, you see, and so the murder was a tragic accident. A different explanation is provided to the audience if they select Dirtles or Bazard as their killer. In those instances, Dirtles admits that he thought Drood was a ghost, while the actor playing Bazard confesses he only wanted to kill someone so he could have a bigger part in the show. <laughs> but we're still not done yet. No, no, no. Once the chairman announces who among them shall fall in love based on audience vote, Edwin Drood appears very much alive. His attacker only managed to stun him on that fateful night, and his disappearance is chalked up to John Jasper, throwing the young man into a nearby crypt. Luckily, Drood was able to crawl his way out of that infernal place, and now he's back, feeling better than ever. Too rude, too raw, too one and all. Before we move on, I want to make sure we address how the role of Edwin Drood is traditionally played by a woman, which is in keeping with a theatrical convention known as the Principal Boy. Principal Boy roles were often written for English pantomimes, and they were always played by young women in men's clothing. Betty Buckley played Drood in the original Broadway production, as well as Dick Datchery, before we discover that character's true identity, I should say. Look, it's all a bit difficult to explain here, all of these variations, but I think I did my bit pretty well, and if you don't agree, you can toss off and munch on me swampy egg farts. No, bro. Come on, bro. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1985 original Broadway cast album of Drood, and I watched the 1986 Tony Awards performance of There You Are and Don't Quit While You're Ahead. This is a highly enjoyable one-two punch, I must say. The staging is appropriately frenetic, with each member of the troupe vying for our attention via tricky, well-timed bits of physicality and Chaplin-esque choreography. There's a bit of cane throwing, and I appreciate the throwing of a cane. I never imagined the costumes as being this grubby, but it makes sense in the context of a standard English musical. These are working-class actors, and even the high-class characters they play have a bit of dust on their jackets. I dig it! And finally, I listened to the 2012 Broadway revival cast album. I would recommend listening to that revival album, as it includes a great deal of music you will not find on the original. But when push comes to shove, my affections lie with the OBC cast. This is not a refutation of Stephanie J. Block, and it most certainly is not a dismissal of Cheetah Rivera, both of whom can be heard on the revival album. I would never, I could never, but the OBC album has a charming bit of mold to it, what with the occasional use of spooky-ass synthesizers and its attempt at recreating the solve-it-yourself gimmick of a live performance. It's, it's positively steeped in atmosphere is what it is, like you're wandering through an old costume shop at night, and you lose a bit of that when crossing over to the sleeker revival. I had a strong instinct the Chicago Public Library would have a copy of the show's book, but my gut betrayed me. Oh, I was so disappointed. So while I was on 
unable to read the book, I am interested in doing so in the future. Let's talk about the score. Angela, my dear, are you out there? I'm up here in the royal boat, Bill. Ah, there you are. And who's that with you then? I am standing with a gent who seems singularly bent on attaching both his hands to both my knees. Alice. I'm considering the lap of a most engaging chap, and I'll let him do exactly as I please. I've a lady down in front who's handed me her latchkey. Surely she must know that spells her doom. Dear and me! And as grand designs to show me in my dressing room. There you are. How distant, gay, and ever there you are. Just like the rest of Leicester Square, you are. Yes, yes, there you are. The name will be yours. opening number, There You Are, is in line with Pippin's Magic To Do and This Must Be The Place From Grind. These songs champion and romanticize the experience of live theater, making it clear that what you're about to see is expressly for your entertainment. Here we are, there you are, you paid good money to watch us put on a show and by God we're gonna give you the best we've got. In theory, this type of song would successfully lull the audience into a state of relaxation, allowing them to forget their troubles and have some fun. But I always wonder how successful they are in that goal, those songs, I mean. I would worry that if you're not careful, a number like There You Are could come off as a mandate, an insistent call for validation, when you've yet to really do anything to earn your audience's loyalty. The curtain just rose, you know, give me a second, okay? There You Are goes so far as to plant cast members in the audience for one-on-one -on -one interactions. And I'm not gonna lie, that kind of thing kind of puts me on edge at this point in my life. Does the average theater goer light up in the face of this engagement, or do they lock up like I do? I would assume the latter reaction is more common, but maybe I'm projecting my own resignations on too broad a canvas. A lot of people don't like to be touched, and there's some touching going on in that Tony Awards performance, so you know, that's an issue to consider as well. Some people don't like to be touched. Don't get me wrong, there you are is a jolly, piping hot meat pie of a number, but I would rather listen to it than have it happen to me. I keep thinking of that episode of The Office where the cast of a local Sweeney Todd production invades the titular office. It's the titular office. Getting in everyone's face while singing at the top of their lungs. The actors are having a blast, but the staff is extremely uncomfortable, and the joke lands because there's truth in it. Audiences appreciate a little distance between the actors and themselves, and when you diminish that distance, it can be seen as a violation, so be careful. I think this can also read as, ah, we're in the show and you're not. We've escaped into a land of whimsy and you're stuck in the seats. Nya, 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 nya. Don't you wish you could be one of the talented circus clowns like I? And Okay, now I, I, I'm definitely projecting, definitely. <laughs> Another trifling day One more so stifling day Of blinding pain Boredom grinds my brain 
mad And not be all that bad Consider each superb disturbing urge you've ever had To curse aloud in church Or choke each bloke who throws a smile your way Be that as it may Man could have bad dreams And not be all he seems Yet not be far removed from all the noblest of extremes Sometimes I think that sanity Is just a passing fad A man could go quite mad a Man Could Go Quite Mad would work so well as audition material for any number of shows, and I'm curious to know if people are using it these days. Would it be a nice treat for people to hear in an audition room, or is it all too common? I don't know. If you can confirm it hasn't saturated the market, I would recommend tracking down the sheet music and making a meal of this thing, as Howard McGillan does in the clip you just heard. I like to picture McGillan striking all sorts of razor-sharp angular poses throughout this solo, twisting his hands as if they're sporting claws while breaking into a clammy sweat. If I haven't made it clear in the past, I relish any role that comes with a bit of madness. If the character is allowed to rant or cackle like a loon, I am there. Sign me up. Let me at him. You'll probably have to rein me in so as to prevent cardiac arrest, but you'll never say I didn't give it my all. Why go subtle on this anyway, you know? John Jasper is penny dreadful gothic cuckoo bird egg crazy so give me your bug nuttiest performance or sit this one out. I say, of course, you have to be controlled in that performance. Don't go so nuts that you can't control yourself. You have to be able to breathe from that diaphragm, baby. Breathe, control it, but give me a craziest, I say. Some of the songs in Drood are so short and so good that I almost want to play them in their entirety for those of you who aren't familiar with them. Two Kinsmen is one such song, so we're gonna play the whole thing. Hit it, Patty! My dearest uncle Jack, my dearest nephew Ned, a life without your friendship would be life as good as dead. The winds of hell may blow, but as you well may know, I'll heed your call, no need to small and face the fire below. For you, for you, for you, for you, to kinsmen more than brothers, we know no next of kin, and yet we know no others closer neath the skin. The blood that flows between us, the bonds that tie us twain. Nephew Ned. My dearest Uncle Jack, if men say words against you, I would make them take them back. A loyal lad am I, would be but glad to die. If by my death one extra breath of life for you I buy. Tis true, tis true, for you, for you. Two kinsmen more than brothers, we know no next of kin, and yet we know no others closer beneath the skin. The blood that flows between us, the heart. Patty. Vocally, Howard McGillan and Betty Buckley are such an excellent pairing, producing a golden, cheery sound that has the same effect as standing in sunlight. The orchestrations by Rupert Holmes are especially good here, quite thunderous and rollicking. There's a spirit of adventure in the arrangement, and I can't get enough of it. Should we play the track again? Nah, we'll move on. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I would encourage you to give it another listen when you have the chance. It's delightful. What is it, like two minutes of your time? You can commit another two minutes of your time, you scurrilous scoundrels. Between the very dead of night and day, 
I'm falling asleep. Am I right? No, no, I kid. I kid again. I kid. I kid. Once I learned that Moonfall is a ballad written by John Jasper for Rosa Bud, a ballad he all but forces her to sing, I remembered all over again how context is crucial when evaluating these individual numbers. Whereas I previously could only imagine Rosa Bud standing in a pool of blue-white light singing out to no one in particular, now I picture John Jasper lurking, practically skittering at the edges of her periphery, this vibrating creep who can barely restrain himself from tackling her. These are all free ideas, Marcus, and that you are free to ignore all of them. <laughs> but the lyrics of Moonfall are so languid and dreamy that you could risk losing your audience's attention if there isn't a really striking stage picture, if there isn't a clear tension holding the scene taut. I'm just saying something to consider. Just one musical man talking. I get threats. Sound of office. If I did, I'd pack it in. You can't fill too many covers with the wages of sin. Come on, give your old love some help with the last line, then, eh? With the wages of sin. Cold bloody hell. Now you can do better than that. Come on, get off your bums and give us the notes then. Considering how to discuss the wages of sin, a convention of musical theater came to mind that I probably haven't considered since college, the charm song. Now, if you're going by the definition on quizlet.com, quizlet.com, a charm song gets the audience to root for the character. And the examples listed under this definition are Santa Fe from Newsies, not Rent, Santa Fe from Newsies, and Skid Row Downtown from Little Shop of Horrors. No offense to the person who put that Quizlet page together, and I swear you'll never have to hear me say the word Quizlet ever again, but this is not an accurate summation of the charm song. To begin with, Santa Fe and Skid Row are I want songs. They clarify the state of mind of a character or a group of characters at the top of a show and define what they want. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. By contrast, and I am kind of shooting from the hip here, so feel free to come at me with your own interpretations. Charm songs place a greater emphasis on the inherent likability of a character. Well, not even the character so much as the actor playing that character. Their charm is directly related to their ability to win us over via humor and grace. Do we like spending time with them? Are we interested in getting six or seven more verses out of them? By the end of a successfully delivered charm song, the answer should be yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. That song didn't drive the plot forward an inch or engage me on an intellectual level, but it doesn't matter. I'm having fun. I'm all in for this actor. You get it. Here are a few examples from musicals we've already covered on the podcast, some of which I realize are meant to be directly addressed to the audience. Must a song involve direct address if it is to be classified as a charm song? Look, I don't know. All of this shit is slippery. That's what makes it so much fun to talk about. Here are my examples. Always True to You in My Fashion from Kiss Me Kate. I Like Him from Man of La Mancha. Honey Bun from South Pacific. The Worst Pies in London from Sweeney Todd. The Grass is Always Greener from Woman of the Year. And Adelaide's Lament from Guys and Dolls. Oh, wait, I actually have one more. The Revolutionary Costume for Today from Grey Gardens. Charm songs need to be well-written. Of course, it's impossible to win over a crowd if your material is half-baked or outright rotten. But they also don't call attention to themselves. They don't showcase lyricism or theme. They showcase you. The material ultimately takes a backseat so that you can shine. In other words, if you take the charm song for granted and assume it will get you over the finish line, you're doomed before you even begin. You might be familiar with some of these talking points of mine from my discussion of Adelaide's Lament, and that would be from our Guys and Dolls episode. Figure out what makes you a joy to watch. That's the key, right? Push that to the forefront and shine, baby, shine. That's what I say. Cleo Lane knows what I'm talking about. The Wages of Sin is is not, in and of itself, this unimpeachable piece of songwriting that allows us to forgive the limits of a performer. It doesn't take you for a ride, you take it for a ride. And Cleo Lane is more than willing to grab the reins and chart a course for us. I fell in love with her almost instantly on this track. I was like, oh, of course, yes, whatever you want, Cleo, I'm yours. Puffer, I could take or leave her, but Cleo Lane as Princess Puffer, yes, please, give me that salty grandma energy for weeks on end. I really like how she lifts and folds and releases the notes within that phrase, the wages of sin. She's turning those notes over, she's giving them a color you can almost see. She did the work. So where the fuck's her Tony, huh? You gave her a nomination, but no medallion? Nonsense. Here's something I hesitate to admit. I am not a fan of Cheetah Rivera's take on this song. I wasn't even aware I was listening to Cheetah Rivera until long after the fact. That's how anonymous she sounds to me on this revival album. I don't say any of this casually, mind you. Cheetah's the best, and this isn't a bad performance per se, but Cleo Lane absolutely blows her out of the water. The revival recording also manages to muck up the song's final moments, in which Puffer encourages the audience to sing along with her. The whole point of the gag is that no matter how loudly you sing on the first go-around, Puffer makes you do it a second time to ensure a big finish. And on the OBC album, you hear that obvious difference in sound. The cast upgrades from casual to cacophonous on the second go-around. So why is it that I hear no difference at all when the revival cast tackles this same beat? Uh, now give your old love some help with that last line, will you then? All right, all together now. Oh, yeah. You can do better than that. Now get off your bums and give us the notes then, eh? Now!
You mucked it up, people. You mucked it up. Odds or even heads or tails, it's high or low, or black or white, or up or down, or left or right, or night or day. Nature seldom ever fails to most obligingly provide an undisclosed opposing sight to one's dismay. There's shadows in this shining moor. If there's a rose, it bears a thorn. Your good is dead as soon as born. And yet we smile, but Luxie's vision is perverse. It seems to work more in reverse. If things are better, they'll be worse in just a while. Hey penny, one penny, tap penny, throw penny, twelve to a shilling, twice that to a flood, and then would you not fancy the currency for and the finest and trace of a side of the coin? Bob is your uncle from pennies to guineas, the two-sided mint is the rule of exception, and would you not feel by the pool of deception, the finest and trace on the side of the coin? Hey penny, one penny, I'm all about both sides of the coin. It's great. I have no idea how anyone pulls off that last bit of hyperspeed articulation, but you gotta hand it to George Rose and Howard McGillan. They make it seem easy. Here's a bit of context I did not go into during our plot summary. Throughout this number, Both Sides of the Coin, John Jasper, as played by Howard McGillan, sings about his Jekyll and Hyde complex, whereas the chairman, as played by George Rose, sings of the confusion over having to play two characters within the same scene. One of his actors never showed up for the evening, you see, and so he's having to pull double duty. It's a clever little setup, I do say. Here's where the revival stumbles when compared to the OBC recording. In the original, the second chorus is underscored by that operatic line from George Rose, the la 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 la, you heard it. The notes are wistfully stretched out, and it works perfectly on its own. So why in the revival is it reduced to a series of staccato bleats? The actor in the revival is just going la 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 la. La 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 la. It's no, no thanks. No thank you. No, not a good substitution. Change for the sake of change is annoying to me, and I won't stand for it. I'm a picky boy, and I want me notes held.
this week, my perspective on the original Drood album could be summed up in one sentence. I get a lot out of the first half and almost nothing out of the second. There's just a point where I would drift off, check out, and nothing seemed to stick with me. I would say that perspective shifted the tiniest bit when gearing up for this week's episode, and that's mainly because I came to appreciate this ditty, Don't Quit While You're Ahead. It's casually catchy, and there's an obvious call for a kick line in the orchestrations, so how could I not like it? I've been humming the chorus off and on for days now. This song also ends with the phrase, For Me, making Drew to the second show in two weeks to carry that distinction. Thankfully, Drew, unlike Hairspray, does not go out of its way to make an out-of-left-field gypsy reference. Now, if you followed the tangled plot of our story in the program enclosed, you no doubt have your own theories as to the identity of this stranger in disguise named Datchery. And if indeed harm has befallen young Edwin Drood, then who would be his murderer? First, there is the obvious candidate for villain, Mr. John Jasper. And may I suggest that no matter whomsoever you suspect is our murderer, you also program Jasper's confession, for he has much to tell us. In the meantime, I beg you to consult both your imagination and your enclosed libretto so as to correctly program your sound device. And also do be sure to program our finale so as to learn the ultimate fate of the unfortunate Edwin Drood. Happy hunting, and do be so kind as to place your player on pause or stop right now. A word from your chairman tickles me because it's the grown-up equivalent of those electronic storybooks that would encourage kids to turn the page when they hear this sound. Ding! It's so earnest and awkward, and without the liner notes, it's also totally meaningless. If you don't have the liner notes and are unaware of what Drood is about, there is no way you can hazard a guess as to Dick Datchery's identity or that of the murderer. All that said, I got a kick out of the chairman telling me to program my sound device. Is he talking about programming a stereo? What if you own the album on vinyl? Uh. At this point, we get five variations on the song Out on a Limerick and six variations on the song Murderer's Confession. And I'm here to insist you should not listen to all of these tracks in sequence. It will drive you low-key fucking nuts. Out on a Limerick simply explains how a character disguised themselves as Dick Datchery and found Rosebud's pin in John Jasper's home. We went over all of that during our plot summary. That narrative never changes, no matter what track you choose, so you're fine to select one of the variations at random, trust me. And when it comes to the murderer's confession, you have to go with Princess Puffer's variation, if only so you can hear Cleo Lane belt out one final rendition of The Wages of Sin, of course. Come on, you gotta, let's listen to it now, shall we, Patty? Take it away! When I killed, twas well intended, drink and smoke, what did me in for my sins? I'm apprehended. Them's the wages of sin. Come on, give your old love some help with the last line, then, eh? With the wages of sin. Oh, bloody hell. Don't you know they hang women these days? This is undoubtedly my last chorus! Away! Away. 
12 revival actually improves upon the original when it comes to this part of the show, the murderer's confession, as most of the OBC confessions are practically identical and the revival ensures that each actor gets a piece that is wholly unique to their character. That would be much more satisfying as an actor, right? To know that if an audience votes for you, they'll receive something special in return and not a slight reworking of the same old tune? I should think so. My hat is off to you in this respect, 2012 revival. I have read the writing on the wall And the greatest mystery is not the history Of Jasper, Drood, and one and all I have met my maker and returned What advice I'm giving to all those living Is just to learn what I have learned Life is dear to retreat to the nearest shelter and dig in. When you live, then you win. Scratch and claw for every day your word. Make them drag you screaming for life. Keep dreaming. You'll live forever here on earth. I have read the writing on the wall and it's clearly spelled out for those who held out that holding on to life is all. Is it clear if you hear my voice, then you're alive. What a bloody marvel we survive. When you think of every risk we face in our mad race. I have read the writing on the wall. Try to live forever and give up. have the finale, the writing on the wall. I have to believe this song plays better in person than it does on an album. I may be, I must be missing something, because despite its obvious desire to serve as a big finale, the number comes off as slight and derivative somehow. I should probably chalk this up to the fact that listening to five out on a limerick variations and six variations on murderer's confession left me in a complete fog, a fog that simply could not be dispelled or pierced no matter how good the finale might have been. I'll say it again, do not listen to all of those tracks. It is a fool's errand. I do want to take a quick moment to point out that the 2012 Broadway Revival cast album also has a lot of tracks that are exclusive to that album. You will not find this music on the OBC album. I know we went into that a little bit, but I just want to call out the specific names of those tracks. So, on the 2012 album, you get Moonfall Quartet, Opium Den Ballet, Ceylon slash a British subject in English Music Hall. You get three variations, actually, on Don't Quit While You're Ahead. You sort of have a core version, 
and then you have two short reprises. You only get two variations on Out on a Limerick on the Revival album, but you get seven variations on The Murderer's Confession. And finally, you get a lover's reprise of a song we did not cover during our score deconstruction, and that is a song called Perfect Strangers. Lover's reprise of Perfect Strangers. And that's it. That's our deconstruction of the score. Now, normally, we would hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, at this time, but we have to shout out our Patreon donor, Rob. That's right. No, 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 not just verbally. No, no, no. Rob deserves a musical shout-out, a special musical shout-out, and so we're going to do that now. Take it away, musical shout-out. No, that's fine. If that time is good for you, that time is good for me. I don't want this to be... No, I don't... What I'm trying to say is I just don't need this to be a big thing, okay? During the day, all right, I have a lot to do, okay? So I just please, whatever time is good for you, I, I'm going to be here all day. I'm going to be here all day. i got to do this, uh, this musical shout-out thing real quick. But beyond that, I'm free, okay? So I'll just see you when I see you, but it has to be today, okay? It has to be today, okay? Fine. All right, fine. I... Look, I don't, I'm not going to say I'm sorry again. I'm not going to say I'm sorry again, okay? I'll just see you when I see you. Text me when you're on your way over. I will come downstairs. I will let you through. I will let your guys come through, okay? I don't care. I'm not paying for it, by the way. I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not paying for it. Nope. No, no, no. I'm, no, I, I have the phone away from my face now. It's not even up to my ear because I'm about to hang up. Okay, Danielle. Bye-bye, Danielle. What? Oh, good. Good Lord, I apologize. Sorry for that. Uh, just edit all of that out, Patty. Oh, goodness. Okay, so hello, hello, it's me, Jason Robert Brown, the famed composer of Honeymoon in Vegas. And I just want to say thank you so much to uh, this this wonderful fellow, this 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 fellow Rob, Rob, this, the, 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 the latest Patreon donor to a podcast I adore. I listen to it every week. I myself can't, I, I can't be bothered to be a Patreon donor, okay? I, I can't be throwing my money around to any and every cause that comes my way. You know, everybody's just pulling at my shirt sleeves. Everybody's pulling at my waistband going, Jason, Jason, give us money. Just, uh, I can't. All right. I'm sorry. I just, I, I have these little mini panic attacks. I, I'm, uh, you have to understand something. I'm going through a lot right now. Uh, I might as well just, uh, you know what, Patty? Keep all of it in. Keep all of it in. I, I've been dealing with this, uh, this ex of mine, this recent ex of mine named Danielle. And Danielle... Um, uh, long story short, she stole my piano. She stole my piano in the dark of night, under my very nose. I do say I was I was asleep. There was I have this cat. This cat was sleeping on my head, and I didn't hear any of it. Oh, I didn't hear any of it. And I don't blame Cat. I have a cat. His name is Cat. Yes, it's very cute. And I don't blame Cat. I just I blame Danielle. Is what I do. She's very upset with me. She's upset because ugh, same old story. She's not as famous as I am, and it's like. I'm the composer of Honeymoon in Vegas. It's very hard for anyone to rise to that level of fame. I, you, She shouldn't be so hard on herself, and I tried to tell her that. tried to tell her that several times, but this happens to me so often. And so my piano has been stolen. It's not the first time it's been stolen. I'm sure it won't be the last time. But so here's the thing, Robert. Robbie, I, I have a little song that I want to sing for you. Uh, you might recognize the tune, but I'm just going to be singing it for you today. You're not going to be hearing any piano, and I know, I know. It's, I mean, blame Danielle. You know, she's a wonderful gal. She's very talented. She's been doing ballet since she was like... 30 and she's fantastic but what are you gonna do she's a thief she took my piano she's on the way over 
But I mean, we got to do this now, Patty, right? I mean, you got to go. You got to go, go, go. I understand, Patty. You got your life. You got a life, Patty. And I understand that you are not single, Patty. All right, yes, yeah. I thought I, I knew that. 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 No, no, no. I knew that. Patty, I knew that. I knew that, and I accept it. All right, I accept it. Let's do the musical shout-out, okay? Rob. Oh, no, that did not sound good at all. No, no, keep that out. Patty, I swear, if you keep that in, I will sue. I'm not going to sue you. Ugh, I do not need more drama in my life. Let's just try it again, shall we? Musical shout-out for Rob, Patreon donor, 5678. Rob's a marvelous man. Rob's a generous gent. Robbie opens up and gives us every cent. And now we sing of him, only him in Brooklyn. There are people who look like our Rob, yeah, and think like our Rob, sure, and talk like our Rob, and yet our Rob is the only Robert we love. One second, hold on. Yes? Uh-huh. What do you mean you're already here? No, that's not possible. You are around the corner. All right, okay. Well, now I sound like Bob Newhart in an episode of Bob Newhart. I'm not going to... No, no, no. Okay, fine. I will come down. I have to finish this, though, okay? Can you give me two minutes? Can you give me two minutes? Danielle? Dan... You're just talking. I'm trying to talk to you. I'm trying to cut through all the noise, but you're just talking, Danielle. I will be down there in two minutes, and you and your guys can bring the piano up at that point, okay? Are you at the back? Well, that's where the freight elevator is. That's where the freight elevator is. You're not going to be able to come through the front. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I can't wait to see how you guys are going to squeeze a, front, a piano through the front door. Okay, goodbye, Dan Danielle. The phone is away from my head now. It's not even next to my ear anymore. And that's because I'm going to hang up. It's because I'm going to hang up. Danielle. Danielle. Okay, bye. Rob, thank you again. Patty, single? Sure, fine. I gotta get a piano through the front door of this building, apparently, or I am going to <laughs> go crazy. Okay, Jason Robert Brown here is saying, uh, just stay single. Just stay single. Patty, you have it figured out. You're single. You're not. Okay, that's fine. Goodbye. Just goodbye. Final thoughts on The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Mystery of Edwin Drood is a quirky diamond in the rough that calls for further examination on my part. Yes, more so than most of our subjects, I want to see it live, in person, in front of my face. I accept that the show is meant to be entertaining above all else. I don't think there are, you know, hidden depths to be discovered here, but even the goofiest of larks can stick to your ribs. So, is Drood a hearty meal? Does it provide a long-lasting sustenance? Or does it pass through you before you're even out the door? That is the all-important question. For now, I'll predict that, yes, Drood probably does rest comfortably in the hearts of those who have seen it. I believe it has the power to make an impression. And until proven otherwise, that is how we shall proceed. My word is law. I am a god to you. Does Drood hold up as an album? No, it's obvious that one misses out on a great deal, even when listening to the extended Revival album, and so I say again, I need to see this show in full. Now, as a reminder, in 1986, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, for Best Musical, was, of course, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and the additional nominees that season were Big Deal, Song and Dance, and Tango Argentino. No alterations shall be made to history on this day. Keep it moving, folks. Drood shall keep his medallion, nothing to see here. When it comes to ranking the show, I plugged The Mystery of Edwin 
Penguin Druid into our number 20 slot, right between Evita at number 19 and Rent at number 21. As a reminder, I don't say this every week, but if you follow us on Twitter or if you just go to our Twitter profile at MusicalManPod, if you click the pinned tweet, you will be directed to a Google Sheet. If you click on the second tab, you will be directed to a complete spreadsheet that gives you all the information on how we have ranked all the subjects that we've covered on the past, in the past, oh, it's hard to hard to explain this part if I don't have it written down, show-related ephemera. I want to play a bit of another Rupert Holmes song, a song that he wrote not for the theater, but, you know, for the Billboard charts, baby, the Billboard charts. And that song is him. Patty, you know what I'm going to say. Take it away. Over by the window, there's a pack of cigarettes. Not my brand, you understand. Sometimes the girl forgets. She forgets to hide them. I know who left those smokes behind. She'll say, oh, he's just a friend And I'll say, oh, I'm not blind I'm a fan of the song, I've been playing it all week, and I'm a fan of the band, which is made up of various awkward white guys. One of those awkward white guys is thick as hell, and he is rocking a gigantic puffy afro, so you know I gotta stand that legend. I'm also standing the Mary Lou Henner lookalike on backup vocals. There is also a YouTube comment from one month ago that I want to showcase. That comment is as follows, quote, Ah, the good old days when singers made their own music and actually had talent. These days we just suffer through the crap music that is churned by Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and Selena Gomez, quote. And you heard that sentence right. It's churned by, not churned out by, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and Selena Gomez. I was going to make a joke about the relevancy of Selena Gomez in 2020, but it would appear her third studio album, Rare, just dropped on January 10th. So who's relevant now, Jonathan? Also, here's an idea, Boomer. Why don't you just stop glorifying the music of your fucking heyday? Who's making you suffer through the music of Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and Selena Gomez? No one's making you listen to that. Shut the fuck up. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Rattleskate. Everyone ready? Then away we go.
All right, I have stepped off of the musical carousel, and we have landed on, oh, goodness gracious, a show that I don't necessarily have any love for, but, you know, I'm not really familiar with it, so maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I just have a preconceived bias. That show is a show that ran for 1,622 performances on Broadway, and it became the winner of the 1992 Tony Award for Best Musical. That is crazy for you. Crazy. Not that crazy. Crazy for you. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. At a certain point, we're going to have to talk about all these shows. I'm just, I don't know. What is that? Gershwin? Cole Porter? I don't know. It's a fucking, it's a jukebox show for one of those stuffy gay white men who <laughs> played, played the pianos in suits in the 19 dickety twos. I'm just being dismissive. I'm in a grumpy mood. I'm grumpy, Patty. I'm grumpy. Maybe I've been bit by the grumpy bug. The grumpy bug is here to get you, Jonathan. <laughs> All right, that's enough. I need to be professional and I need to be calm. If I am calm, I will be able to be professional. Right, Patty? Yes, I should think so. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, not only will you get verbal shout-outs each and every week, you will receive bonus episodes. That's right. Bonus episodes covering the 73rd annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live, and a full review of the film Cats. Hey, what about those verbal shout-outs? Are you going to skip over those this week? No way, baby. Let's do those verbal shoutouts now. Mark S., Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol, thank you so much for donating each and every month. But what if you donate $3 a month? Well, you get everything I just described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. That's what we got with Mr. Jason Robert Brown this week. And you also get access to Wildcats Everywhere, the bi-weekly podcast about the high school musical franchise. That's right. Today we are dropping our episode on high school musical China. That's right. And then we're going to cover Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure, right, Patty? Yes. $5 a month. What does that get me? Well, it gets you everything I've already mentioned. Plus, you are able to stop the musical carousel once and only once to determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. And you also get access to the first season, 12 episodes, of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, as well as an ongoing series dedicated to my reviews of the Broadway in Chicago productions. I'm seeing Mean Girls today, this Saturday. We're recording on a Saturday. Saturday, and then, so that's going to be dropping uh, the same day as well. Goodness gracious. So we're going to be dropping two Patreon episodes the day that this drops in your main feed. So you're going to be getting my Mean Girls review, and you're going to be getting my review of Disney High School Musical China College Dreams, or whatever it's called. $10 a month gets you everything I've already mentioned, plus access to The Snub Club, a monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never, never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our season finale is coming up on January 29th. That is the date on which our review of Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure will also be dropping. And our subject, our final subject for this season is Jesus Christ Superstar and our past subjects are uh, as such here they are Amelie Merrily We Roll Along Flahooly American Psycho Be More Chill Jekyll and Hyde Allegiance It's a Bird It's a Plane It's Superman The Bridges of Madison County A Doll's Life and Aida Donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings movie rentals and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean and if we ever get to a point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total donations I will produce M3 The Movie Musical Man a monthly series for which I watch, I will watch, I should say, I will watch trilogies of movies 
movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. If you are listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We have 28 five-star reviews at this point, and once we get to 30, 30 five-star reviews, I will record a special episode dedicated to the Disney franchise, Descendants. That's right. You can also stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com, and you can also listen to us through Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Email me about anything you want. You got questions, you got takes, you got stories from productions that you've done. Oh, I want to hear it all, baby. I want to hear it all. Thanks, as always, to Patty in the booth. Benny, we're still thinking about you, baby. Happy birthday in advance, and we hope you get better soon. Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo, and thank you, Zach Little, for our fabulous music. Ah, there's that doorbell. Thank you very much, Patty. Oh, but you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Good night.